Hello and welcome to episode 398 of the Crate and Crowbar. It is the 26th of May, 2022. That's right, we're recording this a little bit early. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight I'm joined by Marsh Davies. That's me, hello. It is indeed hello. So yeah, we're recording this a little bit ahead of time from where we normally would. I realised that that would be obvious because I said the date. So I can't help but hang a lampshade on it now. We're very well prepared. Really well prepared for the news of next week that we don't know. (laughs) And there's barely any news in the video game world uh, for us to cover this week. But we will speak to um, something for at least 20 to 30 seconds because it might be funny. Um, Sony has done a uh, some sort of business briefing. I appreciate this is already a laugh a minute, so just keep keep, keep stay with me. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a few things here. Um, they uh, believe strongly that PC gaming revenues will surge, surge in uh, up to three point eight times. Good lord! In financial year uh, ending in twenty twenty, uh, beginning in twenty twenty three, ending in twenty twenty three. I'm genuinely not sure. That's good news, isn't it? Is it? Uh, I mean, I mean, I, yeah, sure. Um, live service games, they're, they're doing them. They're really digging deep and, and making some of them. That's great. The real um, big things to take away from this presentation uh, was they are, they're doubling down on the TV potential of their various IPs, including television shows for both Horizon, as in Horizon Zero Dawn and uh, Forbidden West, with Amazon. No, sorry, with Netflix. God of War with amazon and the the weirdest part of this trio for me gran turismo (laughs) henry cavill playing a honda civic his most emotional role yet for hbo graphic sex scene (laughs) (laughs) well that's good isn't it yeah is it i don't know (laughs) so i think it's i mean hmm it's funny, we had so much time to have a feeling about this. I suppose, for me, it is interesting that... Is it? We'll find out. That um, these, particularly Horizon and God of War, and I think I think there's I think there's been rumblings of... Oh, no, they are making a TV show of The Last of Us, aren't they? That these sort of, like... If you think about that, that strand of AAA, which... F- I don't know. I don't know. I was about to say it feels like it's sort of run out of steam, but what I meant was it's run out of steam for me personally. Like I don't tend to play a lot of like kind of big narrative driven, big budget AAA games, but it's mostly a matter of time. I think probably incorrect to say that these aren't still kind of flagship things for the, um, for the platforms that they're on, hmm. but they've always been molded by an ambition to create more sim- cinematic experiences via the consoles right like leveraging the close association between consoles and movies and consoles and tv generally because that's where they live and that's what most people do with them um and kind of you know creating these kind of immersive narrative-led experiences performance-led experiences in the age of performance capture and so the fact that that now is a sort of um a bit of a factory for generating bankable or at least in this case deemed to be bankable intellectual property is kind of interesting i guess if i was to pull anything broader than this about it it would be if does the the post comic book gold rush on next big thing you know 
IPs look like yeah. games. That's that would be the that would be my because I think there's isn't there like a Bioshock thing in the works as well. Oh, like, yeah, but for ages, right? It'd be interesting to see. Obviously, the the first fruits of this have already been shed from the twisted tree in the form of Halo, mm, which mm. was not not great by all accounts. See, and I had mixed uh, yeah. things, but I did Sorry. see the fan outrage when okay, spoilers for Halo, but Master Chief not only. Uh, takes his helmet off in the show obviously is just a man with his helmet off he also reportedly gets it out if you know what i mean and um uh, maybe not graphically but he does there's a sex scene is what i'm saying is and there? yeah <laughs> okay. um yeah um in the show again spoilers the tv show halo uh master chief loses his virginity in a way that may or may not directly lead to the fall of the planet reach <laughs> <laughs> Which well, is, well, well, well. That's, uh, I mean, that's canon. As, uh, as coming no, no, that's just what he calls goes. It. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I was sort of obsessed with this when I heard it. I was hanging out with a friend in an airport when this news broke into my Twitter feed. <laughs> and every, every possible variant of this um, played itself out in my head, ways for this scene to, to go. Um, you know, just um, like the camera lingering on Master Chief, shirtless, but sort of tastefully so shot from the waist up as he embraces his his lover and then you just hear the halo shield restored noise go like (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Uh, oh yeah also while that happens cortana is watching i forgot the most important detail oh my god he i think his helmet is like on the side or something on the dressing table (laughs) and it cuts to her watching them do it yeah anyway yeah I mean, that sounds great. All, all of this comes from The Witcher being a success, right? Mm. Is, that, is, is that that is the one data point which suggests that games can also be good television? I think and that isn't even originally a game. That is also, I mean, that's originally a book. So I don't know that there is any substantial proof that these IPs are a good fit for uh, television. So, I but like the the other the the exception is animation, right? Live action television is its own thing. Well, um, even then, right, even Arcane is a massive re- refit of that entire fiction from the ground up, right? So that is, I mean, even though you're, mm. you're, you're ostensibly taking some imagery and some names from the, what was a game, it is, I mean, the world of that game is now being changed to fit the television show and not the other way around. So I don't know if even that is a particularly mm. good example. But I mean, yeah, yeah. The, what I would say just as a like a like a thing that that change did start happening quite a lot earlier. But you're right; it's it's yeah. it's built out of a, like a bigger shift. But yeah, like the only reason, and I think that's correct. But you don't know to what extent any of these things are going to be adaptations. Like if you're talking yeah. about them changing the fiction, um, to the thing I was saying literally minutes ago, Master Chief gets his bits out and brings down a planet. Apparently, mm. so they can change the source material in adaptation. <laughs> In good ways, I don't know. The well, Uncharted I, film, for example. I mean, mm. but I, I guess that is, I mean, the Uncharted film was caught up in a like a the the legacy of the first wave of attempting to adapt game properties to films, right? So I, mean, I suppose that's not quite the same thing. It's, it's just been mired in that process for what decade plus. I mean, it kind of this is why I kind of make the comic book comparison, right? Where mm. it's like um, there were clear like there's obviously been you know there were decades of of sort of comic book adaptation where 
the value was seen as ways to kind of filter into a kind of quite a fairly templated uh, sort of, well, I guess, um, a movie industry templated action format, more or less, from many different things. And then now yeah. they sort of took over the world by establishing their own templates that were more in line with the, the medium they came from. And I'm not saying that exact thing will happen with games. It's just interesting to me that as as these big companies go hunting for things to provide that kind of value to them, this is where they're ending up. Yeah. You know? And to be clear, I don't think that anything there is anything intrinsic about uh, these properties which would prevent them from being good television. I just don't think there's any obvious reason for celebration yet, you know? But, yeah, and that, that's, that, that always strikes me as the thing with this is, and actually, I will say this, like, I find this interesting about um, the Arcane comparison because while you're absolutely right that like Arcane had to do lots and lots of heavy lifting and inventing to tell a story in that setting, I think that's almost to its credit or to its, oh, it's one of the it's one of the reasons to care about it, right? Like if yeah. you're already a fan of League of Legends, then it's a way to go a bit deeper into something that you care about. If you're not a fan, the effort has had to be done to kind of create a TV appropriate story out of effectively a broad fantasy setting, right? And, and both of those things seem to lead to a happy outcome and very much did because that show was enormously successful. And so, and it was good. Yeah. It was very, very successful. You know, Witcher, to your point, kind of emerges from established fantasy fiction anyway, um, obviously taps into the game audience. I kind of interested in whether the audience for God of War, for example, will show up for an adaptation of something that it has itself had so many different kind of expressions mm. and doesn't necessarily have that core identity to to lean on horizon i think is a bit of an easier sell because it is visually really distinct you know like i feel like how whatever story they choose to tell if they pull it off visually it will at least look and feel mm. distinct Gran Turismo is the one that makes me laugh because while we might joke about them making like a, you know, steamy prestige TV drama out of it, it probably just a television program about cars, I would assume, <laughs> you know, mm. and that's fine. But like, what is it about Gran Turismo that will make it a Gran Turismo show rather than like Top Gear? I assume. I mean, this is me assuming it's not fiction, but yeah. what, if it is fiction, what's it about <laughs> like just a person getting a succession of driving licenses owning some cars <laughs> slowly panning around them i don't know i don't know i just i feel like this is um television looking for an audience rather than looking for uh, a property y yeah and yeah uh, that can obviously sometimes work but it doesn't mean that the properties are necessarily going to be adaptable i think if all the big platforms, Amazon, etc., start jumping on this bandwagon, then there's going to be an awful lot of shit. <laughs> Do you think they're in pursuit of an audience? That's the part that I find kind of tricky. I mean that in, in the sense that what is attractive to all these platforms about these properties is that they come with a level of popularity. It's right. not that they come with a level of intrinsic storytelling, which is going to set the world alight. It's because they are popular in the medium mm. that they came from. I think that's the thing is I see a differential, at least from my perspective, between an audience and popularity, right? Mm -hmm. Like and when I think about a, a network or a company looking for an audience, I think about them looking for a way into a group or a really identifiable group that they would not otherwise maybe reach or that they want to attract for other reasons or they see as strategically important or something like that. 
and there is that's what i find tough that's that's the kind of the the thing i find tough to square here because if it is as simple as just a recognizable brand that's fine but they feel like very broad broad swings you know that yeah. would require quite a lot of you know focused work to actually make use of that brand recognition and that awareness maybe yeah. i'm wrong maybe maybe there are people who will click but simply because it says horizon in the title but or god of war yeah i i, I read an interesting piece um earlier today from the vulture about netflix's recent troubles their their subscription numbers have dropped for the first time um since their inception as a company and they're in a sort of um we're definitely not panicking panic mode uh, in which they are looking to cut budgets amongst other things and they're also refactoring the way that they think about the production of their te television shows and i suspect that one of the things they're going to sort of withdraw from is some of the uh sort of algorithmic let's say attitude towards uh what is popular right um on their service and they are going to probably reinvest their money into a smaller number of projects um which have some more clearly defined editorial oversight and direction. And I suspect that that will not sit very well alongside the idea of simply snapping up IP from other media as a sort of easy win. Like you say, I think these projects could easily be very successful and very good, but they would require the sort of refactoring that's gone into um, Arcane in order to make it uh, a success in its own right as a, a television show and be a, you know be the kind of killer television show that actually draws people back into that subscription service rather than just be something that lives and then immediately dies on peacock tv or, <laughs> or whatever right yeah it's interesting isn't it because i think obviously we, we spend a lot of this focusing on like netflix or amazon's perspective on this obviously this news comes via a sony thing where it's about presumably in that pitch to the business side it's about like sony's ability to own and generate revenue from these sort this sort of desirable ip so i'm trying to, try to have that as a kind of a slight pinch of salt on this stuff is you know there is this sort of motivation there to perhaps frame these things as done deals or sort of flagship projects for the various platforms they're going out on when in fact this sort of pattern of kind of optioning things and casting wide bets um seems you know putting things in development could be a bit lighter in terms of its you know actual you know right. significance to these networks than than perhaps it would be represented in the sony briefing is what i'm saying right you're right yes in fact i remember um chris donnan uh telling me a story about how Hollywood scripts are optioned in the past. And the aim, he said, was not to write a script which actually got made. It was to write a script which was interesting enough that uh, a network would option it simply in order to prevent another network from making a success right. out of it. Because they don't necessarily know how to do it themselves, but they are worried that somebody else could crack it. <laughs> <laughs> and so maybe that's uh, that, that's what we're looking at here. Just uh, all these platforms getting nervous about the potential popularity of these IP being you know, uh, snaffled up by their competitors. And so snaffling them up themselves 
uh, whilst not actually necessarily having the intention to do anything with them. Perhaps the the, power, the galaxy brain version of that is to make something mediocre out of every IP in a kind of <laughs> mutually assured six out of 10 scenario where like nothing is worth anything anymore because everything is overproduced enough. What a beautiful future. Well, that's the dream. When When's it going the other way? When's it going the other way? When is when is Sony going to make a game of Russian Doll? That's my question. Mm. The answer is probably never, but I would play it. So there you go. <laughs> cool. Should we talk about actual games that what we played and stuff and that? Oh, yeah, why not? Eh? All right. Well, why, why don't not? you go first? Why don't you go first, Mosh? It follows on from uh, the capitalist hellscape that you just uh, outlined. Uh, I've been playing Citizen Sleeper, which is um, actually... It's probably one of my favorite narrative-led games since Disco Elysium, I would actually mm. say, wow. which is high praise. It doesn't, I don't think, quite reach the, the, the giddy heights of Disco Elysium, but it is also a lot shorter. <laughs> so it can't reach as high. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it needs a little stool. Um, it's a narrative RPG. Uh, yep. More on that term in a moment. Wow. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm ready. In which you play uh, a refugee robot on a space station. And the space station itself is this decaying thing, which has only partially recovered from this decades past disaster and a revolution. And you're sort of personified as this, an illegal sentience in a stolen body. Uh, which is quite a nice hook into the world and the stakes here. You aren't even actually truly your original self, but you're an emulation of uh, a human mind, uh, the owner of which has been put into a coma to pay off its debts to a corporation, um, which is, feels a sort of little bit glib, uh, sort of anti-capitalist joke. Um, but then you, as this robot, uh, have escaped your, your enforced labor and stowed away on this spaceship, which has eventually been grabbed and dismantled for salvage on the space station that you find yourself on. Um, and that sort of like premise, I think it's kind of, uh, kind of a lurid, evocative of the game's theme and so on and so forth. But actually, I think it's one of the sort of lesser and least coherent ideas that the game puts forward across the space of, I don't know, 13 hours, I think it took me to like completely exhaust its content. And what I like even better about it is the space station itself, which is this really interesting and thoughtfully thoughtfully explored setting where all the big drama has happened ages ago. Mm. <laughs> and the place that you now enter is like a couple of generations into recovery from that drama. And there are different groups that are that have already long emerged who are trying to stake their claim to that what that future should look like. And meanwhile, everybody else, including yourself, they're just trying to keep the wheels turning. They're just like eking out living in the ruins of this sort of interplanetary capitalist endeavor. And at the heart of Citizen Sleeper is that that process of eking, <laughs> uh, mm. which I don't know if that sounds fun <laughs> to you. <laughs> um, it's why I play horror games. <laughs> hey, oh, oh. Well, the, th the weird thing is it doesn't sound appealing to me. So you arrive like powerless, depleted, and generally unloved, and you have to graft basically every day, every cycle, as it's called in the game, just to sort of keep yourself going. And normally, like in mechanical terms, I would hate that. Like, <laughs> I really hate make-work survival elements in games. They're like my least favorite gaming trend of recent years. 
And yet here, uh, it's really compelling. Uh, it's it's because it's so nicely married to the setting. Uh, everything that the game is saying about survival, uh, necessity, work, meaning, like purpose under or outside of capitalism. It's 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 a really passionate game. Uh, it's a passionate, obviously, about capitalism's inhumanity. But it's but it's not just like a sort of bolshy, crude criticism either like it understands the ways in which work can also be like necessary and meaningful and worthwhile to do and when you do work in this game that really means something for another character it's some of the most powerful stuff that i've experienced in a narrative game um it's it's i did not expect it to strike me like that Hmm. but I mean, beyond that, the sort of the meaning of it, like the game just strikes a good balance in making it an interesting management task. It creates this tension with other things that you need to achieve during your day. Um, but it's never so like onerous. I actually found it terribly stressful, which is I think is important. Um, it, it felt like oppressive uh, at times, but it mm. didn't actually make me not want to play it because I, I found it too aggravating. Um, at least with the, the choices that I, I made, it didn't didn't reach a, reach a sort of fever pitch of of panic, um, and I didn't begrudge it at all until maybe like the later stages of the game, where the upkeep, the daily upkeep that you need to do, sort of becomes trivial in a way, but you also still have to do it. And um, but I, I think part of that might have just been that due to a weird order in which I approached the things uh, to do in the game, and I, I I myself created an odd pace for the end of the game. Um, but maybe maybe I should describe a little about how it does this stuff. Yeah, um, we well, said that we were going to go a bit deeper on what it means to be an RPG in this context. But... Yes, indeed. Mm. Narrative RPG. So that's how it pitches itself. And it's a genre definition, I feel, which has sort of snuck up on me. Like, I, I don't know how you feel about this. I, int- I, I innately know what that means, but I don't know exactly when I knew what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, wasn't, it definitely wasn't a term that we were using when we were games journalists, I don't think. No. Um, and it Hang sort on. of means... What do you think it means? I need to make sure that we're agreeing on that. Well, I think it means, in a kind of bare-bones way, basically an interactive fiction um, where there is also uh, light RPG stat management which affects some of your decision-making. Yeah. I was basically thinking, you don't fight a goblin, and that's basically it. You don't fight a goblin. You don't fight a goblin. (laughs) Because of the narrative aspect. Yeah. You tell a story to the goblin instead. I think you could fight goblins in a narrative RPG, but... Should you? <laughs> yeah, no, question I do games. know what you mean, because I, I would put sort of maybe various inkle things in this category as well. Yes. Where combat or like a conflict could be the outcome of a narrative decision, but it's unlikely that the game will invest heavily in a set of systems by which one can think exclusively about like goblin attrition as opposed to a kind of narrative right. consequence thereof. Yeah, there they, they might be a dice roll in the background associated with it, but it would be testing um, a skill rather than uh, like a tactical interaction or a strategic interaction, I would suggest. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think also visual novel is another way uh, mm. in, which which ties into this visual novels with some kind of systemic aspects to them as well. Um, uh, is that right? What's that game where you, you might have to survive being a princess uh, and everybody's trying to kill you? 
Oh, uh, long live the queen. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, sorry, I demoted her accidentally there. Yes, long live the queen. I, I think that's a similar sort of thing in that there's a, there's a lot of kind of narrative, visual, yeah. visual novel elements to it, but underneath that there is a sort of um, engine of stats which which helps you make the decisions or hinders you make the decisions that you want in that narrative. Um, in this case, like it is basically an interactive fiction alongside these really beautiful illustrations by uh, a amazing famous comic artist whose name I cannot pronounce, Guillaume Sangelin? Singelin? Um, I know Sange means monkey in French, but I don't know what the hold of his surname is. Anyway, um, and in this case, you're also uh, like awarded XP when you achieve one of your objectives in the game. So each time you sort of discover something that might be interesting to you, it becomes one of your drives. Uh, and then when you achieve that drive, you gain XP, and you can put that XP towards enhancing one of several attributes. Um, uh, and that you enhance the di different ways of enhancing them. There's a sort of track, but you can pick different parts of that track sometimes to choose. So you can like just add a dice to the pool uh, when that attribute is tested, or you can gain some other thematically related perk. For example, if you if you sort of like boost, you're interested in being the sort of like the hardy beefy uh attribute um then one of the perks of that is that you you can sunbathe to regain energy because you're a robot you can do this um rather than eating um and that can be that sort of alleviates some of the kind of daily grind worry but each day or like uh or cycle as the game calls it you get this maximum of five dice rolls you can make um, and you can go all over the station and there'll be lots of different things you can take on, but you can only roll dice five times. So you need to choose wisely mm. which tasks you're going to take on. And some are time sensitive and they'll expire within a certain number of cycles time, uh, perhaps with consequences. Um, and others are, as I've said, necessary upkeep. So you need to be earning money. Uh, you need to be feeding yourself. Uh, you need to um, be maintaining your your um condition as a robot um because uh the company that made you built in obsolescence and you need to uh find ways of obtaining this magic juice which will enhance your condition and stop that your all your organs failing and then on top of that there are other longer term objectives which you can foresee will bring some belated reward or will counteract some of that kind of daily grind worry um and on top of that not all dice rolls are equal so when you start a new cycle, you get these five slots which fill up with random dice. And this is like the most confusing part of the game because each slot looks like it's been filled with a single dice and a single face is of that dice is facing you. So like a slot will fill up with five dots and you'll be like, oh, that, that's a slot. That's, that's a five. Up. That's a five. But actually it isn't a five, Chris, because <laughs> the dots actually relate to the number of dice that you will then roll when you select that dice. <laughs> I see. Uh, it's it's a bit of a UI fuck up, I would say. But you know, um, so when you pick like a you know a five to roll on a task to unload some scrap from a docked ship, you're actually rolling five d six and then taking the highest number of that as your success. Right. Um, and the probabilities for that are very imperfectly explained and contradictorily <laughs> explained by the UI in the text. But I think that's what it is. I mean, intuitively, you kind of get a feel for the level of the risk, but it is it is kind of frustrating that they don't represent that in a more clear way. 
So the pools in that case represent like the various distributions of your effort that day. Yes, and you can choose where to distribute that effort. Yeah. Um, but also at the same time, you're losing um, energy, uh, which you can regain by eating, as I've mentioned, or sunbathing, um, and your condition decays. And the condition is ties to the number of dice pools you have at your disposal. So over time, your condition reduces and you'll drop from five dice pools that you can apportion amongst all the tasks that you want to perform that day to four and then to three, and then to two to one. So obviously you need, as a matter of priority, to be going after that magic juice to maximize the number of dice pools you have. Otherwise, you just basically get into this cycle where you, you'll become less and less able to actually act. Uh, I never got into like a, um, a death spiral in the game, so I don't know if that's even possible, but the threat of it was enough to convey the meaning, I think, that those systems are meant mm, to convey. Cool. Um, there are lots of different ways that you can go about obtaining that juice. I forget. I'm 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 sorry to the narrative designers here. I'm calling it juice. <laughs> I can't remember. It has a much cooler name in the game, but I can't remember <laughs> what it is. Um, and the, that 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 urge, that drive, rather, folds uh, into the larger plot regarding your corporate owners who are attempting to kind of reclaim or kill you, and also more broadly, what kind of life you actually want to have on this station or elsewhere, and if that can be obtained at all for you um and there are loads of different avenues to explore and i felt the route that i chose which involved well-intentioned betrayal it involved self-denial heartache failure and a sort of weird resignation to compassion i think it was one of the most emotional and personal journeys that i've been permitted to select in a game like, I mean, it's up there with the most meaningful decisions that I've made in RPGs like Mass Effect. But I felt actually this game was probably because its scope was narrower and the time it took to play was shorter. Uh, it was actually much more consistent in tone and quality across the, those 13 hours than a lot of RPGs tend to be. Um, like I say, I might not quite touch the profundity I felt having played Disco Elysium, but it's a lot more compact of a game. That sounds yeah. amazing. That sounds awesome. I do. I really like dice games as well. So, I I has this, when you when you drag one of the dice slash dice pulls uh, onto an action, there's a it's, it's a very it's a very tactile game. You kind of drag it and it clips into this little box with a nice noise, um, and then you can kind of activate it. This little bar swoops up. It's got amazing sound design. This game and a, and a fantastic soundtrack as well. One of my favorite soundtracks uh, by a guy called Amos Roddy, who also did mm -hmm. like the nice splashy sounds for In Other Waters, amongst other games. Um, really exquisite, bittersweet space feels. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's a really nice aesthetic experience. And I think it, the, the music just sort of echoes both the sort of sense of sadness about this world, but also the sense of perseverance and loneliness and all these other kind of emotions of the game. It's a really kind of incredibly coherent, like... Uh, aesthetic experience um i don't i don't it's it's not it's not perfect in all of its parts it, i think there's a there are like a couple of choices uh that it made that i made rather that punted me into results that i felt were insufficiently or too abruptly explained and not all the character reactions to those felt uh that coherent but um those were very rare, and it's got some big ideas. You'd, you'd love the big ideas. I do like a large idea. Big space ideas, yeah. Hmm. Um, 
Maybe too big, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Let's wind it in. Let's wind it in now, Mark. Well, I, the, all the ideas are good um, in isolation. I feel like there's some of them jostle a little uncomfortably together in a game which has this narrow scope. Like the real hook is your, your, you being in this depleting robot body and the threats that, have, that you face and the life that you want. But then later on, you kind of find that the station also houses at least two other big science fiction ideas. <laughs> it feels like, oh, what a coincidence that these big science fiction ideas are happening here as well in this single space station. Um, and it does, it does find clever ways of tying them back into the setting in ways that make sense. But it also has like that un unavoidable sort of side quest scenario aesthetic. Um, right. But uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. Also, I did find that you could... As I said earlier, you could approach objectives in such an order that the pacing created by the game's competing systems gets thrown off, especially at the end. Mm. Um, and it's partly because exploration is is really quite risky early on. Um, so I ended up sort of skipping that in favor of what I thought would be more rewarding lines of inquiry. And then sort of as a result, I ended up actually mitigating most of the time pressure threats of the game about halfway through and then rediscovering all the early game stuff that I breezed past. And so I spent like the last half of the game essentially hoovering up all this weirdly trivial stuff. Like I've just, you know, redesigned a dive bar. <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't it didn't feel like quite the oh, but then actually maybe I didn't really mind because that by that point I was invested in my life on the station. And so just having to live there and doing that kind of menial stuff did feel kind of more fitting than it might have done. I, yeah, I don't know. Mm. But yeah, bloody hell. Four. It's brilliant. Oh, it's nice to hear you say so. Because like, yeah. yeah, I feel like I feel like you are tough to impress with this sort of thing. Um, <laughs> You are. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe not always for good reasons. I tend to be overly dismissive of some of this stuff. And I'm quite impatient and uh, I don't necessarily give things the time to sit with me and, and uh, enrapture me. But I, this did, uh, it managed it. And I'm, I'm just really glad that the size, the game of this size and scope is, is, is so readily feasible. Um, mm. And particularly one in which, you know, narrative is being appended by interactions that actually really enhance and direct that meaning because it's very easy to make these sorts of games i said very easy to make these sorts of, it's very easy to make the mistake with these games that you just sort of add the interaction as a sort of time sink craft um to a story you want to tell mm. but like this one is is very good at demonstrating how mechanics can actually generate meaning by themselves in the way that you know like papers please did you know i uh, yeah um, and the, the publisher, Fellow Traveller, has been doing lots of interesting stuff in this space. I, they made um, that game Suzerain, which I mm. talked about, I don't know, last year, the year before, where you play as the wettest Susan. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Neo Cab and Paradise Killer are both both theirs as well. It's a really interesting company. I think the stuff they're doing is, 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 is exciting. Here's a thought. Here's a big thought, if you will. Um... What I find interesting about this, and I really want to play this, is so you're talking about making the kind of, you know, uh, dice roll progression resource management side of things narratively meaningful in this context. That obviously lends itself very naturally to a game, a thoughtful exploration of the failings of uh, capitalism in this case, in a way that is maybe not the same as, but, you know, uh, sympathetic to the way that Disco Elysium 
um, has fun with the notion of your control over yourself through mm. RPG vocabulary, right? Yeah. Um, and then I think when you mentioned Papers, Please, in the way that the kind of, um, uh, you know, the mechanics of management can be used to expose things about the, you know, the banalities of those of evil, right, in, in that kind mm. of context. Given that these are all thoughtful uses of game mechanics to say something, does this not reflect quite poorly on games? <laughs> like <laughs> the way you can derive meaning from these things is mm. to make them about, you know, the yeah. influ influence of people on forced scarcity and, and labor and, and the, the illusions about one's control over oneself and whether that's even desirable or not, or, you know, the way in which simply the concept of managing and processing data is inherently dehumanizing like i find this kind of really interesting like not to say that like that's the only worthy use of these things because i very much don't think it is but it's interesting that in as games reach for art we end up circling back on some fairly hard ideas about what those behaviors in games actually represent right i think that's but i yes i i agree i and i think there are things uh worthy criticisms to be leveled about uh, at game's innate um, gravitation towards uh, so acquisition of resources, for example, or like a pure quid pro quo in terms of input and and reward. Um, those things I, I often, I think, do not train people well for the realities of this world. Um, and so using those very systems to criticize those systems think is is quite clever but then i don't think that's the be all and end all for example in citizen sleeper as i said earlier like it also does dwell on how work can be meaningful and rewarding and i think also even in the way in which it makes those interactions tactile and pleasurable even if they are sometimes monotonous and repetitive like i think it is saying something about mm -hmm. I, th I don't think it's me being um totally derogatory about the kinds of ways in which you 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 perform work in games or in the real world i think it is acknowledging the ways in which that can be profitable productive pleasurable and good as well um right so i think there is a spectrum yeah i think that's what interests me that's what interests me about it because i think and was one of the many things that you said that i thought was interesting is is like i'm interested in games that are critical of the way we interact with systems like this but I'm particularly interested in when you can kind of acknowledge the complicated pleasure that systems like that create, right? Yeah. That like, if you talk about the, the formal brute force employment of the same thing, like the way that some interactive fiction games or even like dating sims use resource mechanics to um, gate your access to narrative content, basically, right? Like as kind of pace breakers or as kind of pace controllers effectively that maintain in a way that is really hard to map onto other other media, basically. Like, mm. you know, movies and books, you know, if you, you compare like, um, I'm trying to think of an example of this, um, uh, like Dream Daddy, right? Like comparing a game like that to, let's say a kind of like a romance paperback of similar tone pace control in both of those things are very different things and i appreciate that sounds maybe a little more loaded than i meant it to um the <laughs> what i mean is like um relax don't do it 
Exactly. Um, what I mean is the sort of the the resource loops and things of an interactive fiction game, for example, uh, or actually a fail better game. So a perfect example of this: the kind of the the acquisition of resources that you expend on narrative outcomes. Those things prolong your engagement with the game world, right? That's kind of functionally one of the main reasons they're there. They can they contain sort of um, moats of narrative value that maybe lose some of their kind of calorie count over time but they keep you in the world as you kind of focus on the pursuit of that resource, which allows you to kind of like break through the next narrative wall. Maybe I think fail, uh, fail better games are in general, a good example of this. And that level of like some of the engagement of those games comes from these, um, you know, acquisitive mechanics that draw you in. And therefore it is, it is tricky to simply dismiss them as sort of empty interactions. But it's also notable that in like a more traditional book, for example, that that kind of, you can't sort of say to read chapter five, read chapter four again twice. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, well you could, but people wouldn't. <laughs> they would keep going. <laughs> and and there's I just find it really interesting. I just find the sort of like there's a there's an open territory here in terms of like what actually motivates people to play games and what levels of brain engagement people want how much of the time it was interesting to me that you said that this is a shorter experience which mm. i think is also kind of valuable because i find that disco elysium really is like a big undertaking right yeah or it feels like it i know i really exhausted this game as well like it, it's quite eager to give you an ending uh earlier than uh, what i played it to mm-hmm. um and you can carry on playing it after that point and then uh, well, I assume, depending on the ending, um, and then um, find other endings to have after that point or to deny. Um, so I think it's actually probably a 10-hour game if you just want to get in and out. And I think you know each of the endings has an interesting and satisfactory conclusion as well. So it's um, it doesn't it doesn't overstay its welcome by any means. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I'd find this whole thing fascinating. I'm definitely going to play it. Maybe I'll have some thoughts next time we play it. Yeah, I'd, I'd really like yeah. to hear what you think about it. I don't, I, again, like, I don't think it, and like, I, I, out of the gate, I, I framed it as being this anti-capitalist thing. And I don't, it, it's obviously very critical of capitalism, but it, it also isn't so um, facile as to suggest obvious alternatives. It's, it's, you're living in the ruins of capitalism, not necessarily because of, uh, capitalism itself but because you are literally living in the ruins of a space station that was once capitalist and the right. solutions from that point aren't necessarily obvious there are lots of people who are suggesting different things and i don't think it ever goes so far as to suggest that one or one or the other of them is is obviously right but it's clear that all of the ways of recovering from the state that the space station finds itself in start with some amount of personal kindness to each other and I don't think that is really a political stance. I just think it's a true one. <laughs> you know? Well, to the extent that it is political, that's a shame. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, yes, exactly. If, if it was the, the kind of the centerpiece of uh, more political movements, I think we'd be living in a better world. Right, right, indeed. What have you been playing, Chris? Well, I've been kind of, I realized thinking about it then, I've been playing kind of the opposite of this game in uh, the equivalent <laughs> opposite. In that um, uh, I have been playing Dune Spice Wars. Oh yeah, right. Which is the um, which is about <laughs> the most acquisitive, <laughs> the most acquisitive space capitalism there is. 
And and more to the point, it is a game about that acquisitive space and spice capitalism. Um, um, I can't cut, I can't get the red alert thing out of my head now. Like I'm escaping to the one place <laughs> untouched by capitalism: desert planet Dune, Arrakis. Um, <laughs> um, so this is this is um, a, a kind of grand strategy game set on Arrakis uh, from Dune. Uh, by Shiro Games, who made Northgard previously. Uh, I didn't actually play Northgard very much at all, but it's similar from the outset. Um, it is loosely a tie-in to the Denis Villeneuve Dune movie. Um, oh, is it? Right. I it thought is. it had completely different character arts and stuff, so I assumed nope. they would... They'd it doesn't... Re- it, 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 it is. I mean, the character art is different, but they, they have, like, for example... Um, re, um, reimagining Liet Kynes as a woman of color is the same. Oh yes. So right. like there's there's one and also the logo it uses the 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 curvy dunk of mm. the, <laughs> um, the series of croquet hoops um, speaking to space majesty um, <laughs> that is the dunk logo. Um, uh, what, uh, yeah, there's a Duncan Idaho joke in this. Um, um, so what it is is an asymmetrical sort of uh, real time 4x strategy game. Um, it's real time, a bit like um, I guess like Crusader Kings and things like that. The game that it reminds me the most of is Sins of Solar Empire. If anyone Ooh. remembers that, but it's not yeah, space like strategy. It. It's not like it's it's obviously you're on the on the ground on the sands. Of Arrakis, um, I've played a fair amount of it now. Um, I've played three, two and a half campaigns, basically, um, twice as the Atreides while I've got the hang of it. Uh, the second one ending in a victory, and then I'm um, pretty deep into a Fremen campaign at the moment. Um, so it is a, uh, as I say, a real time but grand strategy game. So military maneuvering is part of it, um, but it is equally about. Um, politics and espionage and fundamentally about uh, the construction and management of resource um, uh, resource production across many different strands of resources. So it's got that, for me, it really has the feeling of a kind of engine building, empire building board game, actually, despite the real time element. It's a lot about making best use of the resources you happen to come across in your exploration of the world and managing them carefully to carve a path to victory for yourself uh, with several different victory conditions possible and to that extent i really really enjoy it like i i've I've been enjoying it partly because so i tend to not play these games on the hardest settings like honestly like i'm not great at them but there is for me a satisfaction in managing these systems well like having an idea and executing it like following um sort of um you know following the kind of fate and fortune of your kind of uh exploration of the world and, and trying to kind of build a engine that takes advantage of it in interesting ways but the 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 factions all played differently so there are four factions there's the atreides the harkonnen the fremen and the smugglers uh, which are really the four the four main power bases but the mm. game does a good job at also gesturing towards the broader galactic context of the battle for arrakis so the setting to be clear the setting is sort of like it's set as the atreides arrive on arrakis pretty much 
but from there it proceeds in completely its own path. And the slight abstraction is that the Atreides and the Harkonnen are both on Arrakis at the same time, rather right, than handing say. off from one to the other. Um, <clears throat> so that's one of the major differences. There's several other major differences, including the fact that Paul is completely absent. Um, oh. Just does not show up at all, um, despite lots of other characters showing up. And so you pick you pick your um, your faction, and they have fixed leaders. So it's Leto Atreides for the Atreides, it's um, Vladimir Harkonnen for the Harkonnens, it's Leot Kynes for the Fremen, and that smuggler person whose name I've forgotten for the smugglers. And then you pick every time we start a campaign, you pick two advisors. And what these are basically like they're themed as like characters you attach to your leader but really it's like you pick a faction and then you pick two modifiers for that faction that affect how it plays so if you take for example um stilgar and stilgar's mate whose name i've also forgotten you can do a slightly more warlike uh, or more aggressive guerrilla warfare take on the fremen if you take as i did for the second run um uh, Jessica and Duncan Idaho, you can sort of lean into diplomacy more with the kind of Bene Gesserit thing and also lean into the connections to the Fremen via Duncan, that kind of thing. So hang on, you can, you t- as a Fremen, you can take Jessica and... No, sorry, that was my Atreides campaign. Okay, right, right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Jessica for the... And they, they basically unlock modifiers or bonuses and they can mitigate, they can moderate the difficulty as well because it's like easier or harder for a faction. So you do all of that stuff and then you're kind of plonked down on Arrakis with an ornithopter and a capital, basically, um, which is like Siege Taba for the Femen or um, Arakeen for the Atreides. And then you push back the Fog of War and you look for spice fields and you start gathering spice. And it's real time. And so there are sort of events and things that occur on a clock that kind of guide your expansion or your your progress as a, as a sort of... Um, as a house, I suppose. So at, at intervals, the the Landstrad will demand um, a certain amount of spice from you in tax. So, and if you don't have it, it massively knocks your political influence. And it can, that can be very dangerous. So it has that kind of Dune thing of like, if the spice is cut flowing, that you get, you can kind of over, be overlooked at the galactic level. Um, for the Fremen, it's slightly different. They have to pay a bribe to the Spacing Guild on the same interval mm. in order right. to remain hidden, basically, on Arrakis. Um, is there is the Fremen's objective still to uh, harvest spice in the same way that it is for the Atreides and the Harkonnen? They do it differently, and they have different vulnerabilities. But yes, they need to they they need spice for political power, which doesn't feel wildly off given how they no. go about it. But basically, so the other thing this plugs into is you have to get spice at a certain interval. And there's a little bar you can slide, which is how much spice you put in your stockpile. And your stockpile is what gets pulled from to pay these taxes or bribes or whatever. And how much you f- basically um fuel straight into the galactic market, the Chome, Coam, how would you pronounce mm. that? Market. And so if you're if you're kind of comfortable, you can hit your targets for the stockpile. You can pump the rest into galactic trade, basically, and take you know, for money, basically. Um, the system this sits alongside is the Landstrad, the kind of galactic kind of parliament, basically. The emperor is completely absent, which is interesting, um, along with Paul. Mm. But, um, but basically, every so many, every like month in game or something like that, um, uh, the Landstrad convenes. So when the Landstrad convenes, basically the game throws up a screen that says, these are the three motions that the Landstrad is voting on in the next cycle. 
and these will be modified. These will be either like policies that affect everybody, or for example, policies that would only affect a certain house. So, if it's a policy that affects everybody, you vote yes or no. If it's a policy that affects a house, you vote which house it affects. And occasionally, there are elections for like permanent seats on the land strip, which convey other bonuses, and your. Um, ability to generate spice to, to kind of meet your commitments to to the galaxy basically um give you influence which sit on top of the number of votes your house naturally has in the land strat. so um so for example the atreides and the harkonnens kind of compete on an even footing here and then use their influence to tilt votes one way or another the fremen have zero votes in the land strat and have to use their influence to get those votes via other houses Right. Okay. Um, which is kind of a way so they don't really get to play this game. But I'll give you some examples of play. But basically, like um, um, the the nicely themed. So it'll be something like um, sort of mand- like architectural surveys might be a motion in the landstrad. And if this affects a house, it might mean that the building costs for upgrades of their capital city are suddenly half the cost or like you know much cheaper for the duration of the policy because architectural surveys are being carried out however it will also disable all of the outer defenses on those buildings huh. because they're being surveyed and this is where you get some of the kind of like the politicking nature of something stuff i love about those books of, of you know deliberately voting for the harkonnens to get cheap construction because it's going to switch off their outer guns feels very dune Right. Yes. Um, I saved up all of my in my most recent campaign. I saved up all of my, um, like, um, saved up all of my influences fremen, and then dumped it on a single vote to basically force the Harkonnens to um, be unable to reinforce their troops uh, while they were being inspected, <laughs> something like that. And then then just sort of rolled in and raided a couple of border settlements, disrupted their spice trade and fucked off again into the desert, which again, that stuff feels really good when you pull it off. And there kind of emerges through this cycle of politicking. The other thing, like the other example I give, so that, that Atreides campaign I won, I won by basically, my, um, you know, I care enough about the fiction to want to kind of like feel out or role play out certain scenarios. So what I did is, sort of expanded to the point where I had a number of kind of highly productive spice fields. And then I basically just fortified that position and put all of my resources into basically giving money to the Fremen and giving stuff to the Fremen and giving access to the Fremen. And there are also, in addition to the kind of the main Fremen faction, which is out there in the desert, that that they sort of represent the unified Fremen under Liat Kynes. There are other Fremen that are in sort of like hidden sieges throughout the desert, mm. which need to be found by your ornithopters. And when you find them, they will basically just throw out raiding parties into the desert uh, at you until you meet them. And if you meet them, you can enter into like a, an engagement with them. This can be more or less difficult based on various other diplomatic factors. If you progress that to its conclusion, you can ultimately form these alliances, which kind of turn them to your side and often give you some bonus or another. Huh. And so I got my certain point with my little Atreides um, settlement, defended it really robustly, but then put all the rest of my resources into basically protecting it by forming an alliance with the Fremen. Like, um, and because my goal was, I wanted to see what happens if Leto's Atreides plan had actually happened. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. Right. Like that does not necessarily put you in opposition with the Fremen in, you know, in the canon. No, it's like, uh, it's, it's basically the deal he makes, right? Like I'm going to stay behind my walls. The desert is yours. And, 
And that sort of held both the smugglers and the Harkonnens at bay for long enough for me to amass so much influence in the Landstrad that I could just keep electing myself to every significant position. And at that point, the Harkonnens couldn't really move against me because I completely controlled politics. And um, because, you know, if they did, I would just make it hard for them and just repel them and, and so on, make it harder for them to meet their own spice quotas. And then at the end, one of the win conditions, and it is a bit anticlimactic, is basically be voted, you know, into the governorship of Dune, like a kind of permanent governorship of, of the planet. And I got that. And obviously, it's one of those things where you get that, you know, once you've got it, you need to protect it for like 200 days or something. Did that because my position was so unassailable by that point. When that clicks over, you get a victory screen. But it feels kind of nice to have kind of like proven the point out. There are other, yeah. There, yeah, there are other Lito ways. Leto was right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this would have worked. Um, so, and this is where I get into some of the, and there's some other systems actually. Like, so there's an espionage system where, which I quite like how the way it works, which is over time you generate these agents and you can kind of assign them to different things. Like it's counter espionage, which is a very basic one, but you can also position them with the Spacing Guild, with any of the other houses, with the Landstrad themselves, and they generate different resources for you and generate different levels of influence within these other factions. And this allows you to then basically save up plots. The way it works is you, you will, for example, be, you know, um, Arrakis itself is one of the things you can gain influence over. And if you get, you know, a certain amount of influence, you can um, create these like plots, like for example, poisoning water supplies or sabotaging gear. And you kind of invest your resources into them. And then they are almost like banked, like activatable abilities that you can use when you're in a battle, for example, or in other circumstances. So it's like a bit of a retroactive thing. It feels quite board game-ish, but I quite like the way it feels because I'll be like, well, you know, I did this actually in the same Premon scenario I was describing. I basically waited until I could hit the, use all my influence to hit the Harkonnens with something that would weaken their defenses. And then as the attack began, I also used a banked plot I had to sabotage their gear in that region of the world as well. And the the narrative side of that is not that you were sitting on the ability to magically make the guns fall out of their hands. It's that you planned that a while ago and now you're triggering it, right? Like, you know, the sort of plots kind of converge and that feels really good. I think that's a kind of nice way of kind of representing some of that feel within, um, within an otherwise kind of fairly ordered grand strategy game now to the stuff that where i find that it's so this is a game in early access i should stress and i think it, it's it's very playable um despite that i think it's, it's very promising i do think it's interesting that what it can't do is all of the messy interrelation between characters and factions and the consequences and the complicated labyrinthine consequences of small actions that actually define dune as fiction right like mm. if you take the kind of it's this is why i think it's significant that paul is missing because paul is the character who to some extent wins this game right in the book mm-hmm. but does so through a journey that takes him through into a close relationship with the kind of with almost every faction that we're talking about in a very fluid way which is not possible but also relies on his ability um given his gift to see the myriad branching you know fractal consequences of any particular drop in the pond right whereas this game weirdly feels like it has a much more kind of locked down and sort of 
as I say, kind of like um, um, procedural kind of board game-ish kind of possibility space. So chaos really can't emerge from decisions. Mm. And the thing that's emblematic of this to me is so there's many different ways to win. You can like knock out enemy headquarters, knock them out of the game that way. You can win these diplomatic victories. You can achieve it a few different ways. But through espionage, for example, one of the, the later plots and their multi-part complicated things to pull off allow you to plan and orchestrate assassination attempts on the other faction leaders. Hmm. And so if you wish, you know, and this is, I think, in the spirit of trying to enable other things, what happened in them books, if you wish, you and you're playing as the Harkonnens, you can maintain outward civility and behind the scenes be developing a plot to assassinate Leto Atreides. And if you do that, the Le- the Atreides are just out of the game, 100% out oh, of the game. Wow. Okay. It is over for them. It's just done. And it's funny to me that that is the case. And it kind of makes sense because this is like a way to win is to successfully assassinate all the other leaders or to like knock out the Fremen militarily, assassinate the Atreides, and then, you know, hold the, the, the smugglers at bay long enough to become a governor of Dune could be a way to win as Baron Harkonnen, for example. Yeah. But the entire plot of dune stems from the fact that assassinating leto atreides doesn't do that yeah (laughs) you know and i don't think that like i I understand like what i'm not asking for is a magical game where like the entire genre shifts to like you know paul and his mum lost in the desert trying to figure out how to topple a planet from there but it's illustrative of what this game can and can't do Hmm. that something so nuanced and complicated from the fiction is sort of reduced to like nuclear launch detected from command and conquer yeah well it's interesting that you you played uh the atreides as leto would have played it but i bet you cannot have that same conclusion and it be defined as good by playing as leto's fremen counterparts like you couldn't create that same campaign as the fremen i would imagine as in what players they would play and win well play it as they would play but also be the partner to leto in his attempt to become governor yeah you just and for that to be considered a success yeah because it should be considered a success for them narratively (laughs) you know yeah there's a lot of stuff that's sort of half there like for example control of like the the polar cap where there's still water is quite a big thing you can do Hmm. but it feels slightly it's interesting like the game sort of lacks that sense of revelation from the book of that realization that the outward perception of arrakis is only what the spacing guild satellites allow them to see Hmm. and that slow dawning resolution that the fremen control a lot more and there's a lot more to arrakis than anyone's letting on right the Hmm. game can't really do that because of its setup like you know it's all kind of known you know ornocopters kind of buzzing around finding secrets but everyone's sort of in the similar starting position at the beginning and like the bigger loftier fe- uh, fremen goals of you know restoring water to rex and so on so nowhere to be found you just need to beat up a lot of harkonnens um and so that stuff is a little bit more limited but i do like i think this is all kind of taking it as an adaptation of the source material and i think it is not without its kind of merits like this this cool stuff like um uh, I've I've gotten this far without talking about sandworms, so I talk about sandworms. Basically, um, like there's a if you are if your troops if you're not fremen and your troops are out in the desert, um, they will attract a worm 
basically, and mm. it will eat them. And so you've got to keep them moving. And also being in the desert drains their kind of endurance, basically, and that will eventually kill them as well. So moving troops around the desert on foot is this sort of game of scurrying from, you know, like rocky plateau to rocky plateau. Um, all of the other uh, factions except Fremen um, harvest spice using spice harvesters. And they will also trap worms. And so, and there's like a big alert when you get a worm sign, but you can, and you can, and that means you need to, you need to send in the um, sort of airlift transports for spice harvesters, carriers. And so you can like, you can have your spice harvesters flagged for like automatic extraction at first sign of worm sign. But if you are, you know, and to be honest, that's almost always worth it. But there's a bit of tuning there where if you really want to get the maximum value out of that, you micromanage that. You don't you don't let it automatically pull them out. You keep them there for as long as you possibly can, which again feels quite dune. Hmm. The Fremen just set up camp peacefully on the sand and don't have to worry about this shit at all. Um, but everyone else has to kind of be mindful of worm sign, mindful of sandstorms and other things that kind of throw that off. And then, but for everybody else, like you can build these little airfields around the various villages you can kind of capture and fortify and build up. If you build an airfield, then you can fly troops from anywhere that has an airfield to anywhere else that has an airfield, um, which gives you a lot more access to the world, but relies on this sort of like quite fragile network of nodes that allow you to move things around, basically, that can be sabotaged. The Fremen work completely differently. They um, start the game with a supply of thumpers, and it takes a while before they get the ability to make more, but they start with a supply of thumpers. If you drop a thumper next to an army, you can then drop a destination for them and a worm will pick that army up and just take it wherever the hell you want to go. Um, yeah. And so you can kind of teleport around the surface of Arrakis um, for as long as you have thumpers with which to do it. And that feels kind of fun. Like I, you know, I got, uh, I was playing today actually at lunchtime and had a big Harkonnen army push quite deep into my territory as Fremen. I caught with my army elsewhere, my main sort of force elsewhere and managed to kind of, like deliver them via worm behind those Harkonnen forces and kind of sandwich them and trap them in the desert. And that felt really cool. Hmm. So there's lots of, there's lots of things I like about it. I think um, a lot of this stuff, these moments that I'm describing are a little bit mind's eye, right? They rely on my attachment to that book to kind of fill in my imagination of what's happening. To be hmm. honest, the, um, the, the, the animation for a worm taking an army from one place to another really does look like a kind of serpentine aggressive poo is sort of <laughs> clipping through the world on its way to its destination. Um, but, um, but you know, in the theater of the mind, that's a, a powerful scion of Shai Halud. Um, <laughs> I have a hard time from what you're saying, visualizing how, it switches modes from being quite what sounds like a, a potentially a twitchy RTS game where you have to dodge worms at the very last minute to being this grand political drama. Well, let me tell you about menus. <laughs> it's menus. You basically spend most of the time wasting around a big map that looks quite nice, sort of checking your various little notes and then, and then alternating between that and a string of that sort of thing to react to notification bar, which is quite well implemented. The kind of now traditional like Civ type. Hmm. These are the things that have come up, right? 
and the iconography for them is pretty easy to grok and, and they're colored based on what they are and the sort of stuff like that. And you flick through those notifications and you scan about the map and then something will eventually say worm sign and you go, oh shit, and you check and you you know drag your troops and you move them slightly out of the way. Right. Is it all real time, even yeah. when you're politicking? Um, it pauses on certain screens, including right. that one and the research screen, I think. Um, so, and then it'll be like, it's Landstrad time and you look at the Landstrad things and you'll make decisions. And later on, you get more decisions to make. So for example, if you get elected to certain posts in the Landstrad, you can do things like re-roll some of the Landstrad motions to try and get the ones you actually want, that kind of thing. So I re-rolled mm -hmm. into the ability to make myself governor of Dune, <laughs> which was a kind <laughs> of a play. But with stuff like that, that's where I talk about it feeling board gamey, right? Yeah. Like I can, there's a, obviously the board game of this version of this would not be real time, but to something like, you know, um, Twilight Imperium or something like that, I can, I can almost visualize me sat around the table with my friends playing the board game version of this mm. and them knowing that if I re-roll the Landstrad thing and the governorship comes up, they can't win, you know, and mm. then doing it and being like, oh, there it is. And then, you know, that sort of feeling like I've, I felt very familiar from tabletop. And so I would describe this as, I think there's, there are people, I think there's, there's, I think it's possibly a little shallow when it comes to like um sort of the grand strategy side of things i think the strength of these games generally i'm speaking specifically with your games is they feel nice to whittle away time with you know like mm. this sort of um i am fond of the you know uh, when i first got this i managed to have the kind of long slow sunday afternoon play a grand strategy game playing it i hadn't done that for a while and that is kind of what it's for in my mind. It's a little bit more of a kind of um, pleasant sort of mindful space capitalism <laughs> exercise. <laughs> it feels like the, this is what I'm saying. It's the, oh, clearly the opposite of Citizen Sleeper, right? Like yeah. constructing a, fun, you know, um, paying my um, corrupt and corrupting space taxes on time uh, to the point where you know, the emperor pats me on the head and tells me I've won was satisfying. It was a nice way to spend a Sunday <laughs> afternoon. Gave me a sense that I achieved something. Um, the Harkonnens ended up so far behind in that game that I was constantly getting trade requests from them where they'd be like, you know, it would just be Baron Harkonnen pops up and is like, you know, despite our enmity between our houses, we should make this deal. And it'd be like, I will give you um, two, uh, two pennies and a photograph of me in return for all of your spice, please. <laughs> um, Tempting. Exactly. I, yeah, I'd recommend it. Like I, I appreciate it. It feels, it feels like we've had a very duny year, given how much of a dune we've talked about on this podcast recently. But <laughs> I don't mind that. More more years could be duny. Yeah. Where do you foresee this going in early access? And has it got particular objectives that it's going to I have off? to admit, that's a level of research that it behoves me to have done that I haven't done in terms <laughs> of finding out what it is they're actually um, planning for it. I think I think tuning, like, there is, it's in that stage at the moment where I can see the levers where decisions become interesting about, for example, leaving your you know, crawlers on the, leaving your, your, your harvesters on the sand a bit longer to, ex, you know, extract more value. And, and honestly, like maybe to return to the citizen sleeper thing, finding yourself in more desperate situations more often that lead to sort of um, strange or interesting outcomes. I'm yet mm. to be, 
I've seen some of the AI do some interesting things actually, but it still struggles a bit as most of these games do with that sense that like a negative outcome is usually just bad. It doesn't necessarily open a door somewhere else. Right. Mm. And like, if there's anything that kind of defines Dune, it's sort of like, I mean, it's very much like, and this is maybe where the theme falls apart for me a little is Dune is about many things, but one of the things that it kind of encapsulates is how difficult it is to really hold on to power, right? That Hmm. for all of the best intentions in the world, power is an extremely slippery thing and technology makes it more so. And, um, you know, culture and tradition and faith will make it more so. And that, you know, like this, um, and so it's sort of, on, you know, Arrakis resists in the fiction robust systems of power that simply uh, yeah. dominate it. And actually, well, like you, yeah. I think you said earlier, I mean, a lot of the big uh, things that happen in Dune are completely unexpected by many of the characters. Like, <laughs> exactly. the, you know, the Sardaukar suddenly um, siding with the Harkonnen or, or, you know, Paul turning out to be basically Space Jesus. Neither of those things seem like they would work well in an RTS. (laughs) Well, what's interesting is I sort of wonder about some elements of that. So, for example, you can, um, one of the Landstrad motions can grant you access to the Landstrad guard for a bit. But, like, the Sardaukar are completely absent from the game as well. Mm. And I I do sort of wonder if, like, there are certain aspects of the film IP they were asked to stay away from, but I don't know. Well, I I guess it's just because in order to make a kind of repeatable game with a status quo you have to remove those things which emerge completely out of context and fuck things up for everybody yeah yeah it really is it does feel like that's what's been done i do i do wish the movie side of car were in there though um because i want to click on i want to click because everyone they have you know i want because you've got the voice lines for everyone like you click on them and your uh fremen will say like our chris knives are ready Oh, something like that. <laughs> of course. And I want the version where you click on the side of the car and they just go, you know? Sort of a throat singing in there. It'd be good. Yeah. I'm surprised that isn't like a political action you can take to finally get like the emperor to to, to mess with your opposition in that way. Mm. Yeah, well, the absence of the Emperor is interesting as well. Yeah, this is a, those are things I do wonder if are coming in updates, right? Mm. Like, cause they feel splashy enough to be like, it's the Paul update. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what bonus. Because the other thing is, like, a lot of, like, the the power of those characters is wasted a little bit on the very small buffs they give you without any further interaction, right? Like, Duncan Idaho, for example, makes it easier to make friends with Sieches. That's kind of what he does. Hmm. But he doesn't actually personally play any role in that. He never speaks. He doesn't even show up. There's no kind of like, other than your mind's eye sense that I guess he's my friend in this timeline, there's not like any sort of actual manifestation of that. Like one of the Fremen ones allows you to, oh, that the 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 old Reverend Mother, I've completely blanked on her name as well. Uh, she can be one of your kind of associates. And this, you know, gives you, in the description, this gives you access to the, you know, the tremendous sort of, um, you know, collective memory of the Bene Gesserit and, and what that allows you to leverage as the Fremen. What that means is you can see spice fields on the minimap. Um, <laughs> uh, that's, uh, yeah. The definition of bathos, I believe. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But, um, but that's not good. I, should, do, I mean, you recommend people jumping onto it now? I think if you, I think you'd have to tick both boxes that I ticked of 
like Dune, you know, be attracted to Dune in some way, mm. and also be in the mood for slow burn, resource management-y, gentle, clicky strategy, right? Mm. Like, I think if you want Dune and you want 100% Dune vibes 100% of the time, it's probably not going to quite knock that for you. And I think if you want, like, the best real-time grand strategy game on PC at the moment, it's probably not that either. But it could mm. get there. Like, it, it's it's been well-received, I believe. And, like, I think, you know, it might be better better further on. But I think if you're in the, in the Venn diagram between those two things, I think there's something to something to recommend it. I certainly find it's it passes the test of consistently giving you something to think about, you know, or like a decision to make or something to invest in. So that's good. I will give it a go on a nice, luxurious Sunday afternoon. That's, that's the time. That's the time for it. Yes, that's the the time for Dune. You've been playing something else, haven't you? I have, but very briefly, and I'm going to return to it later on the podcast because so I've been playing V rising because you'd think you'd tell me Stunlock who made battle, right? Which I really admired, which is the kind of arena mobile like sort of isometric action, competitive action, PVP game um, that I thought was great years ago um, have made vampire Valheim kinda, I guess. <laughs> um, and that's a huge sell to me um, inevitably. Um, but I haven't played very much of it, and one, despite having time to do so. And one of the reasons for that is I bounced off it quite hard, um, and mm. I want to revisit it because I've got friends who are really, really enjoying it and setting up servers to play it together and so on. Um, but I'll give you the, the top line and then sort of explain where I got to with it, but also why I want to replay it. So it is a bit like Battle Right, an isometric um, sort of action RPG um in this case with also the kind of like traditional survival game progression elements in an open world that is well a kind of open world it's like um it's structured actually quite a lot like an open world diablo map in some ways where it's like mm. it's it's really corridors between pockets of forest or ruin or something like that right yes um i thought it was a diablo-esque game really from the screenshots it's more of a rust or a valheim um yeah. it's a survival game or a you know, don't starve kind of thing, um, but it has it has you know it has Diablo DNA certainly, um, but the combat system is reactive in the way the battle right was. So like your first abilities kind of speak to this. You can have like a melee ability based on what weapon you're carrying. You have a kind of vampire dash where you kind of disapparate into red mist and kind of scoot around and reappear somewhere else. You have like a blood bolt, which is like a charged um, linear ranged attack with a kind of, I guess, MOBA-style targeting reticule, or MMO-style maybe. And then you have like a counter where you briefly kind of open your vampire arms and kind of adopt a kind of like, come at me pose. And if something hits you in that interval, you retaliate, which is sort of links into the sort of timing-based attacks of enemies, which is very much feels like Battle Right. But if you didn't play Battle Right, it feels like Dota. If you don't play Dota, it feels like League. If you don't (laughs) play those games... Um, imagine a more reactive Diablo with fewer, more impactful abilities, basically. Um, and those systems were pretty cool. Uh, I liked them immediately. Um, problem number one for me is that I think for me, survival games, the sell of them, particularly building games, 
is um, sort of the immersion and also the sense of place you create when you've created your own environment. Mm. And an isometric perspective uh, plays against that for me. Um, I find it less immersive. You know, I don't mm. feel you know a strong sense of where I am when I am looking down on my character from above. That's pretty subjective. The other side of it is, and there's some fun ideas, like there's a day-night cycle, and during the day, you're going to burn to death in the sun unless you take cover in the shade. And the shade is dynamic, so it's based on the actual angle of the sun relative to the trees and things. So cutting down a tree can be a real bad idea if you're taking shelter under it and things like that. And you can build a base to protect yourself and so on. That's, and so building the base is where it sort of lost me. And this is, but it's so core to the game, this is where I'm going to have to kind of reapproach with a different attitude. So you're chopping down trees, you're learning to break rocks, you're gathering wood and materials and ores and things. And then you start to build the kind of your first castle. And your first yeah. castle is basically like a wooden palisade fence around a coffin. <laughs> um, and your coffin is your respawn point. And then at the center of your castle is the heart of your castle. It's not something more like Dungeon Keeper at this point, where you build the heart of your castle and then you feed it blood and it powers the various the blood you get from killing enemies um and then it powers the various devices attached to your castle and where it lost me was the exact moment i needed to feed blood to the heart of the castle to power my magical automated sawmill <laughs> because yes. this isn't the fantasy for me no there's not much about building a hut which feels particularly in a rhythm with the fantasy of being a vampire right particularly because yielding wielding control over a kind of kingdom or even like a fairly industrialized mechanism for bringing you the things you want does feel quite vampire to me and i think mm. deeper into the game you have servants and other sort of npcs to put into play but for me my sort of vampire getting their hands dirty, constructing a magic sawmill to create planks of wood so that they could make a better crafting bench just really doesn't feel right to no, me. No, like, Lestat does not know how to operate a sawmill. No, is... he really doesn't. <laughs> and like, and I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of vampire fiction that sort of plays at the edge of like vampires as technologists, um, the, the Netflix castle. Talking about good game mm. adaptations actually to bring this full circle oh, the yeah. netflix castlevania um show which is fantastic in my opinion mm. um touches on this in an interesting way um framing dracula is like somewhere between dracula and kind of doctor who in terms of their relationship with humanity but in a very kind of in a fucked way let's say um <laughs> <laughs> i love that show i think it's great and um but for me like that just isn't like i appreciate that like I think the game is intended to be played in multiplayer with you kind of speeding through some of these early stages. And I think it's also designed for an audience that really want that kind of, you know, uh, bit base building, resource gathering thing at the core of it. For me, it's a slight mismatch with the fantasy and didn't kind of like, if it was an optional playstyle, I would skip it, but it's not. It's the core of the game. I feel like the version of this, not to backseat game design, because I think it's not always very helpful, but the version of this in my mind is one where you create two characters. You create a vampire and you basically create your little Renfield or Igor or somebody, yeah, basically. Right. Yeah. And then yeah. during the night, you play as all-powerful vampire going off and exerting your influence. And then during the day, you play shitty little, shitty uh -huh. little Igor, knocking down trees and gather <laughs> gathering things for the castle, right? And 
that yeah I, and then maybe you can go out during the day with it as a vampire but it's a huge risk you know like that and you go out at night as as shitty little eagle and that's a huge risk like that that would sell me on this harder than like oh i gotta get out of my coffin and hide under a tree because i really need some wood or like <laughs> my castle is vulnerable because like you can create a mist in your castle that protects you from the sun but doing so involves feeding bones to the bone brazier and mm. at that point we're at like a level of abstraction that has kind of lost me a little bit because it's like vampires are thirsty for blood out of a kind of bestial hunger which they've refined with an epicure's palate into a kind of faux aristocracy that exposes the bestial nature of these actual hierarchies in human cultural life not vampires need blood because it's basically diesel <laughs> <laughs> yeah um uh, hmm. so but but i caveated this all with like this is me playing for like literally two hours and going this isn't really what i thought it would be and piecing out while everyone around me goes nuts for it so i am going to give it another more concerted go when life allows it's just yeah i didn't click with it straight away hmm. combat was so really I, good done. i do want to play the uh renfield slash dracula version that you outlined though that does sound a lot more rewarding I think if you search Renfield slash Dracula, you'll find a bunch of stuff <laughs> right up your alley to return to another conversation. With Mary. There was something else you wanted to call out, right, Marsh? Uh, yeah, just very briefly, I wanted to uh, say that jelly is sticky. Uh, true words never said on this podcast. <laughs> and also, uh, there is a game with that very title, which is good. It's, it's a soccer band puzzle game, and I find it very difficult to talk at any length, interestingly, about soccer band puzzle games. Uh, but this is a good one. <laughs> uh, it explores the various ways in which jelly is or is not sticky. Um, and that's about it. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it's good. I find I actually prefer this to the um, well-lauded soccer band game uh, Patrick's Parabox, which was released earlier this year. I find this one to be a little bit more kind of um, consistent in the, in the difficulty of its puzzles and its... Whilst not throwing at you the kind of mind-bending um, concept of recursive worlds that Patrick's Parabox wielded, um, I found it a much more kind of rewarding and consistent experience. But that is about the top notes of what I could possibly say about it. Well, jelly might be sticky, but this <laughs> citizen is sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> so i think that's about all of the time we have indeed for this week's podcast uh thank you very much for listening if you'd like to find more episodes like this one you can find them on our website at creatingcrowbar.com which is also where you will find a link to our discord channel where said episodes are discussed they're also available on youtube youtube.com forward slash create and crowbar almost lost it but didn't um if you would like to support the patreon and thank you to so oh, fuck me fuck 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 shit fuck if you'd like to support the podcast you can do so on patreon thank you to everybody who already does so find out more information about the patreon at patreon.com forward slash create and crowbar 398 episodes marsh and i still can't do this <laughs> still can't do this um, I think that's just about all of the things I traditionally say at this point, isn't it? I believe um, so. Yeah, uh, I have been uh, and and uh, remain Chris Thurston. 
And I'm Marsh Davis. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. Everybody. Everybody. For Mambo number one, turn to page 32. <laughs>